Well, good morning, and goodness, how long have I been uh, away from this pulpit? Um, we had, uh, of course, I've been kind of dealing with some illness, still kind of fighting this, uh, this diverticulitis, had a very severe case of it. And then, of course, last weekend, we had that wonderful 150th anniversary weekend. Who, here, who, who was here for that? That was uh, just a wonderful time in the Lord, wasn't it? Uh, celebrating all that he's done here. And uh, I'd like to thank the the elders for being patient with me as I've been dealing with this uh, nasty stuff here. I wouldn't uh, wish wouldn't wish this stuff on my enemies. And there's my whole message on grace for your enemies today. Have a good morning. No, <laughs> but it would it would it would cover it. Trust me. But we're going to try to get back now. I know we've been away from this series and away from the material for a few weeks, but hopefully we can. Pull it back here to our subject uh, series entitled A Summer of Grace. This morning, we're going to focus on grace. Earlier, we talked about grace for you, how there's grace for you. We talked about that in part one, if you remember, several weeks back. And then uh, the next time we visited the series, we talked about grace for your friends and family. This morning, we're going to talk about grace for your enemies. As we get started on the subject, I'd like to kick our time off together with just a few notable quotes. Uh, you don't have to read into these, just uh, as they come to you, just, just uh, uh, process them as they, as they arrive. How do you regard your enemies? Let's get some answers to this question from the pages of history. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt once said, I ask you to judge me by the enemies I have made. Here's another one. This is from Napoleon Bonaparte. Never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. <laughs> How about this one? This is Oscar Wilde. I choose my friends for their good looks, my acquaintances for their good characters, and my enemies for their good intellects. It's interesting. This one's someone revealing about uh, the mindset of the world, uh, Albert Hubbard. An enemy is anyone who tells the truth about you. <laughs> Enjoyed that one. This one actually comes from a 1600s uh, collection out of Europe entitled The Art of Worldly Wisdom. A wise man gets more use from his enemies than a fool from his friends. Again, hmm, interesting. Well, let's end with that one, slightly cryptic as it is, by asking this question instead. How does the world regard their enemies? How does the world treat their enemies? That's kind of where we've kicked off. Or how do people treat their enemies when they're not showing them grace, right? Apart from grace. You know, before we dig into our text, let's explore that question for just a few minutes. Uh, first, let's, let's, let's just try a little exercise together. It's not going to be push-ups, thank God. Different kind of exercise. Take a moment with me, friends, and just think with me. If you want to close your eyes for a minute, you're more than welcome to do that, to form this picture in your mind. Just stop and think for a moment. Who are your enemies? Who are the people that you would consider your rivals, your enemies? Think about those people. Just think about those people with me. And don't think about it too long. Don't go too deep with it. Just, just think of maybe the first few individuals, of individuals that pop into your mind. Uh, on a personal level, when you hear that word enemy. 
And if you're having trouble with this one, uh, if you're having difficulty thinking of a true enemy this morning, uh, just be advised that Webster's defines enemy as not only a military adversary or a hostile unit or force, but one that is antagonistic to another. So now you've all got grandkids stuck in your mind, right? But it doesn't have to be uh, Kim Jong of Korea. Maybe when you close your eyes and hear the word enemy, maybe you think of your mother-in-law. I don't. I don't. I'm blessed by mine. But maybe you have a, a mother-in-law or you have some other relation that uh, isn't a blessing to you, but, but instead maybe kind of has a stranglehold on you. Um, maybe you think of them as your enemy. You've set that word aside for them. Maybe when you hear the word enemy, you think of the, the guy heading up the competition using a method or, or a company in which uh, you pay the bills. Maybe that individual's your enemy. Maybe the enemy is a coworker in line for promotion. You desire where you work. Maybe uh, when you hear the word enemy, you think of the, the person who lives in your neighborhood and just doesn't abide by the rules, whether they're city or state or just generally accepted good manners. You know, you're trying to live right and, and play nice with everybody, and this individual just keeps on breaking the law or getting by with something uh, unethical. Maybe he just uh, cuts his lawn too short or not short enough. I always tell my wife, uh, I don't mind having the worst looking lawn, but I don't want the best looking lawn. That's, I don't know. That's more worldly wisdom. Maybe your enemy is, is a distant relative who just has nothing good to say about you. In fact, perpetuate something negative about you every chance they get. Maybe it's somebody on Facebook, the one that's, you know, diametrically opposed to everything you believe in, and yet they, they always seem to comment on everything you post anyway, just to see how you'll respond. Or maybe this uh, person belongs to some other political party than you or worships another god or, or identifies uh, with a different sexual orientation or even self-identifies as something that not, that's not even human. There was a recent news article reported on a woman that's convinced she's a cat. You can self-identify as a cat in the year 2018. They'll let you. Maybe this person is your enemy. Uh, maybe it's a waitress down the street at the restaurant because, you know, she, she fills, everybody else has a bottomless cup of coffee but you. And we laugh at some of these things. Some of these things are, are, are silly, but, but stop and think about it. You know, enemy collecting on a personal basis is actually seems to be encouraged in this world. If we were to take a public poll this morning and ask who are your enemies, just, just say them out loud. If people were forthcoming, yeah, we, we'd probably hear the devil. We'd probably hear some other responses, dictator, so-and-so, ISIS. But we also might hear responses such as uh, the media. Uh, I think if I were to talk more privately with you this morning, maybe on a one-on-one -on -one basis, hear some more personal responses, maybe uh, ex-spouses, in-laws, uh, work employers of the past. One author comments, given opportunity, responding honestly, we all can have an enemies list. But the point is, what do we do with those lists, right? What do we do with those people? For many of us, he goes on, there's an urge to vilify, to blame, to clutch close to bitter hearts, the names of those that we hold responsible for our happiness. And it can overtake us. Sometimes we, we allow people to make us bitter. In the flesh, my friends, we, we think of enemies as people that we have no use for. 
And so putting off grace, we, we like to think sometimes of enemies as people we can step over, step on, maybe pretend they don't exist, they, they don't matter. The world makes it fashionable and comfortable to draw little lines where we, we keep our sympathizers on this side and our antagonists on that side. I, I've known Christians who even seem to take pride in having these little factions, us and them. And yet Paul actually includes factions as acts of the flesh. In Galatians 5, along with uh, witchcraft and drunkenness, that's in there. And yet, too often, we, we still comfortably draw these lines, this friend or foe, don't we? The world around us is so successful at separating people into one of these two categories, we've even built empires on the practice. And, and I don't even mean uh, big... Uh, governments either. Uh, let's just think of corporate. Bear with me. I'm going to talk tech for a minute. This might sound uh, goofy, but this is reality. A perfect example of friend or foe. Uh, think of Apple computer. And I'm serious. I'm serious here. Think of product Apple. A recent article in Forbes magazine says, name a company with a more loyal, energized customer base than Apple. Multiple factors created this loyalty, but there's one element that was a key driver for many. This sounds bizarre, but stay with me. Any marketing major will tell you that Apple was so successful as a company, as a business, because Apple created an enemy, the PC. And Apple built that enemy into much of its marketing. It's true. It's true. Uh, Apple computers, if you're into this stuff, think about it. Apple computers, phone software, it doesn't get along with anybody. It's an enemy to anything else you try to plug it into. That's just true. Apple proudly makes and manufactures the least compatible, the least likely to play with others' products on planet Earth. If you've ever uh, known anybody or if you yourselves ever tried to get an old iPod to work outside of the iTunes program using a cable that didn't come in the original box, good luck. Apple never won anybody over because it was user-friendly. Apple won over the computer, the tablet, the phone, and a chunk of the music buying industry because Apple presented a brand name and an option to come join our side. Now, if you're an Apple person, I'm not trying to offend you. Not, not trying to offend you this morning. Uh, truth be told, I was one of you weirdos myself years ago. <laughs> and then finally, I saw the light, and I bought a decent open source product from Samsung. You see, there I did it, us and them. I lack grace for Apple people. But in all seriousness, this appeals to us. It's like we're wired for it. It's built in. It appeals to our brokenness to seek out, to harmonize with people who, who see things our way, who are on our side in the line, to regard our list of enemies as those people, not our kind of people. This is just the way we go. But our God has shown us, his people, another way. Another way to think. How does God treat his enemies? We're ready for our text this morning. Uh, his words from Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Reconciled. So the Lord thinks a little differently about his rivals than they do, right? Or than we do, us. We mentioned earlier in the series that the death of God's son, Jesus, had everything to do with you and me being saved. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he mentions that the grace the church has given is a free gift. 
It's a free offer. We know this. Grace is a gift, and it's a gift from friend to foe. Without the free gift of grace, the Bible says we are enemies of God. We're enemies of God. We're on the other side. But by accepting the grace of God while still his enemies, we're reconciled. The us versus him is gone. In the original Greek, the word reconcile actually means to change or exchange, to return to favor with or to receive one into favor. So though in our sin we are adversaries of God, we're bound for death after our sin is taken away by the blood of Jesus, we're in his favor. We're in fact bound for eternal life. How does God choose to treat his enemies? Matthew Henry writes, God has done the greatest, which is of enemies, to make us friends will certainly do the least, which is when we are friends, to use us friendly, to be kind to us. Just think about the freedom this gives us because we're brothers and sisters. So God was our enemy, but now he's reconciled us to himself. He calls us his friends. Do you ever stop and think about the peace of mind that should give you? I don't. I don't think about that as much as I should. Honestly, I don't think enough about how hopeless I was before God intervened in my life. But think about it. To go from being hopelessly on the other side of that line to being God's friend. If you're a Christian, God doesn't just love you perfectly with the godly love, but God likes you too. He likes you. He really likes you. You are liked. You are given godly admiration. Another commentator adds, standing in the grace of God means that I don't have to prove I'm worthy of God's love. Sometimes in this life, in our relationships, you know, sometimes we feel as though we, we have to prove we're worthy of one another. Uh, even sometimes in the kingdom of God, we encounter that, unfortunately. But standing in grace means I don't have to prove I'm worthy of God's love. Standing in grace means God is my friend. Standing in grace means the door of access is open to God directly. Standing in grace means I am free from any kind of score sheet. There's that old song that the old account was uh, settled long ago. Johnny Cash and some others have sang that. The account of sin is settled in Jesus Christ. It's settled. So there should be no greater peace of mind than no longer being an enemy of the living God. No greater peace of mind. Think of it. And some of us who, who, who've spent time in some rivalries before, uh, maybe against a, a brother, a Christian brother, maybe against a blood brother, the pressure's now off. Why is that? Because of grace. Because God had grace for his enemies. Those on the other side don't have to prove we're worthy. We don't have to prove anything at all in Jesus because Jesus has removed all sides. He's come over to where we are. And he continues to work on our side, too. And I, I love this. Um, he continues to work for our benefit through his Holy Spirit. Hebrews 7.25 goes on to say that Jesus, quote, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Wow. Jesus Christ, your friend, making intercession for you. Your God, your friend. That's grace for your enemies from the perspective of glory. Wow. But this comes the difficult part for us. Because now, see, now it's on us. Do we follow 
Christ's example as Christ followers in our relationships with our enemies on this side. As far back as I can remember, I've dealt with people who I wouldn't say they were, you know, maybe in a fantasy adventure film were my mortal enemies unto the grave. I've always been able to get along for the most part with most people for the most part. But I don't think I've ever been involved anywhere socially ever in my entire life, school, family, you name it, wherever, where I haven't been at some point in, in, an, anti in an antagonistic situation with somebody. Now, I know you're just thinking the preacher's just a jerk. But this happens, doesn't it? it it's just going to happen from time to time. It happens in the workplace. Maybe you've lived with it there. You have kind of an antagonist, uh, antagonistic sorry, relationship with somebody. I know I have. Long back... Uh, long time before I was ordained as a minister in ministry, this, is, uh, this was the Dark Ages, or you might refer to them as the Clinton administration. I began my working career at the age of 16 as a short order cook, and I got along pretty well over the next few years as the guy who had a favorite a style clean white apron to tie on and a, and a deep fry grease a change rotation to keep. And I liked most of my coworkers, but there was this one guy, this one guy, right? One guy. But here's what's interesting. Over the next 20 years, as I went, you know, see, I was, did this cook thing. I was, worked in grocery. I was a stock boy. I actually uh, repaired computers for a little while until I fried a zip drive and lost that job. <laughs> they don't like when you do that. Finally, I settled on uh, hospital supply purchasing for, for a decade. And don't ask me to tell you how much a piece of uh, hernia mesh costs because you'll never trust a surgeon again. Looking back over that 20-year period working, God was working me toward uh, my, my, my dream career. There's always this one guy. There's always this one guy. You know, I think it was the same guy. I, maybe it's a conspiracy theory of mine, but I really think it was the same guy that just followed me from location to location, and he'd have a different hat or disguise on or something. But at the very least, my suspicion of someone else in the workplace is antagonistic seemed very common when I think back on it. Now, today, I've come to accept that, that maybe the real problem in all those places, maybe the issue I had with that one guy was never really with that one guy. Maybe the problem I had, uh, the common denominator, might have been me. <laughs> There's a chance. How, how quick was this guy to place this word, this, this idea of rival, upon other people who uh, may alternately have ended up as my allies uh, or just friendly acquaintances, right? Abraham Lincoln once said, don't believe anything you read on the internet. No. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln once said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And he basically borrowed from Proverbs 25, 21 to 22, which says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heat burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. That's a really neat passage. Really neat passage. So think back with me to that person, those people, that group, whoever it was that you considered your rivals, your enemies, whoever that one guy might have been for you, whoever they were. And maybe they weren't you know, mortal enemies under the grave, but maybe just people that you'd rather cross the street and go the opposite direction than to have to acknowledge and be friendly toward in broad daylight, right? Ask yourself, would you not destroy them as your enemy if you made them your friend? even if it took grace to pull that off. There was a popular bumper sticker we saw a few years ago and then you know, on the internet since, which is kind of like the new bumper sticker, I, I know. 
Is God's job to take vengeance on the terrorists and it's my job to arrange the meeting? Romans 5, 6 to 8, on the contrary, says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And it goes on to note, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God thought of us on a list once too. But God went beyond the bumper sticker. He arranged a meeting with his enemies by putting his own son to death on a cross. Think about this. If we're reconciled to Christ, do you think that our response should be anything less than if necessary? Not easy questions, but we need to ask them. Would you, would you attempt befriending a member of ISIS for the cause of Christ? You're not a slave to fear. You're a friend of God. Do you have grace for your enemy? You're of a conservative, clean-cut Christian mold, and this is 2018. Would you allow a transgendered couple of indeterminate adult age who hated God and practiced Wicca into your home? Not to berate them, not to stone them to death, but to love them. That's not an easy question. Maybe, maybe just to get to know them, maybe sit down with them, maybe hear their stories, maybe find out about those roads they've traveled. And let's not be silly here, perhaps Cracker Barrel would be a better alternative for meeting with these folks. I wish there was one right here. I'm going to keep saying it, it's going to happen. I have faith in that. Do you get on your phone, you forward that Facebook meme and smear that political candidate or president or former president because it makes your side look better, your people, your faction? In the age of 24-hour cable news networks, programs such as The View, social media, we get so much mileage talking about our enemies, what we stand against as Christians. I wonder if many of our enemies even know what we stand for in the first place. Or who? Why don't we have grace? Instead of cutting people down, why don't we pray? Twitter has become the in spot for the in crowd to mock and belittle others. But Jesus says in Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so I challenge you this week, pull up those mental lists. You've got them. I've got them. Add just one little word to the top. Prayer. Prayer list. Prayer list. Because having grace for our enemies isn't going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It may take you all the way to Calvary to get the job done, but if we're, if we're truly following after Jesus, where else can we go? Where else can we follow? I shared with you some of my old uh, uh, acquaintances. You know, okay, one guy from the restaurant, one guy from the grocery store, one guy from the computer shop, maybe that one guy from the hospital. They, they, they used to be on a list, uh, a kind of list for sure. Can I say doo-doo up here? Which is a wasn't a very nice list. But today, years later, these people, they're, they're now on a different kind of list. They're on, a, uh, they're on a prayer list. That's not easy. We just can't do that, right? We can't, we can't just change these people the way Jesus changes people. No, we can't. But will we let Jesus make changes in us? Will we let him make changes in you and in me? Here's one author writes, here's the remarkable secret. Praying for our enemies, folks, doesn't change them. It changes us. Changes us slowly and grindingly and grudgingly into people of mercy, people of grace, people who look like their father. 
Prayer changes hatred to love. You can't pray for someone and hate them. So just imagine, imagine if every one of us, like Jesus, began praying for and then actively loving as much as possible our list of enemies. Does this sound kind of like heaven? Sure does. Will it be easy for us to pull off down on earth? No. We're not going to accomplish it in this life, but if we're in Christ, if we're in Christ, brothers and sisters, reconciliation is always the goal. That's always the goal. That's what God does. Will you have shown grace for your foes when Jesus returns in his grace for you? That's the question. I'd like to close this morning by sharing uh, part of an article which appeared in Time Magazine four years ago this December. And perhaps many of you, you remember this, this account. You'll think, oh, yeah, I, I remember hearing about that from the pages of history. The author begins on a crisp, clear morning 100 years ago. Thousands of British, Belgian, and French soldiers put down their rifles stepped out of the trenches, and spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western Front. In the hundred years since, the event has been seen as kind of a miracle, a rare moment of peace just a few months into a war that would eventually claim over 15 million lives. No one knows where it began or how it spread, or if by some curious festive magic it broke out simultaneously across the trenches. But nevertheless... Some two-thirds of troops, about 100,000 people, are believed to have participated. The author continues, In some places, German soldiers emerged from their trenches calling out Merry Christmas in English. Allied soldiers came out warily to greet them. In others, Germans held up signs reading, You know shoot, we know shoot. Over the course of the day, soldiers exchanged gifts, including food, buttons, hats, and more. This Christmas time truce also allowed uh, both sides the opportunity to finally bury their dead without the battle surrounding them. In addition, it is believed, it is said that there were uh, pig roasts, there were even some games of soccer played between opposing soldiers. And while, while as they say, the, the, there were occasional moments of peace throughout the rest of uh, the First World War, they never again came on the scale of this truce of 1914. So we may ask, what caused peace between certain enemies on the 25th of December? We could say Christmas, but it, it definitely wasn't Cindy Lou Who of the Grinch fame. This world can encourage such solidarity, but the coming of Jesus Christ led bitter enemies of a great historical war to lay their arms down in grace for just a little while, for one day. We let the one who reconciles his enemies to himself, lead us to lay down our arms against one another on this day. This is a thought that can change the world, my friends. It's called grace. This is grace. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we praise you. We thank you for who you are. Lord, we just thank you so much that you chose grace. Lord, we, we, we don't deserve to be spared. In our sin, we separate ourselves from you, but we were made in your image. 
Lord, it would have been perfectly justified for us to never see this day. No, God, you chose grace. You chose grace. Grace for those who said, I don't want, I don't want what's best for me. Lord, we thank you, and, and we just pray that you would continue to reach out to us. Continue to guide us closer to you. Keep us close. Don't let us get away. Lord, we hear a lot we know about peace. There are a, a lot of men who, who, who seek peace in this world, in this life. But, oh God, we know that ultimately we all need to be seeking you. And when we have you, Lord, we know that, that peace will come. Lord, help us in this age, in this broken world, to draw close, to stay there. To remember, Lord, that, that those around us, even though they rival you, even though they rival what we stand for, that you love them too. They were made in your image. And help us to extend that kind of love. Even when it's not easy. Even when it's the most difficult thing we can think of to love somebody. You've set the example for us on the cross. Lord, we're, we're thankful for you. Help us to honor you in what we do. It is in the name of Jesus that I pray these things. Amen. And this morning, if, if you haven't let grace into your life to cover those sins, if you haven't yet made a decision that I'm tired of doing this on my own without the one who made me, <laughs> without him I'm lost and, and, and I need God or at least I, or I need God a little more. <laughs> if you haven't made that decision to, to be drawn into those waters and come up a new creation in Jesus Christ and begin that grace journey in your life, we invite you to come forward. We're going to sing an oldie but goodie. I think we all know this one, the old rugged cross, because this is the point of grace. This is where it all happens for each one of us. And the old rugged cross for each one of us is the path that we must continue after we've received what he's offered us. Would you stand? If you have a public decision to make, we invite you forward. Let's sing uh, loudly and proud, proud about that old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame.